Welcome to episode 232 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Professor Steve Smith, uh, who is with the University of Exeter, and he is also the co-author of a report about tipping points, both environmental and technological, that could be negative or positive for humanity's future. And I'm very interested in this because I know nothing about it. And so, uh, listeners, uh, unlike previous interviews where I blather on uh, interminably, uh, this time I'm mostly going to be asking brief questions. So, Steve, welcome to the interview. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, Martin. Well, uh, yes, and I'm glad we got the the correct Steve. I thought you were the Sir Steve, who was also at the University of Exeter. And I have to ask, uh, am I the the first one to make to confuse you you two, or? Does that happen regularly? Because you're both at the same school. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, um, I'm not a Sir Steve, uh, but Steve Smith is a very common name. I like to think it's popular, not common, but it's a very <laughs> common name. And uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm just plain old Dr. Steve Smith. Okay, plain old Dr. Steve Smith. Well, let's get into this because uh, I'm very interested. What Could you explain what you mean by tipping points? Certainly, yes. Uh, so we have just produced the, the first ever global tipping points report, which we launched at the COP28 climate conference just finished. Um, but basically the report, which which covers all of the scary, bad uh, uh, tipping points, harmful tipping points that we don't want, also includes the positive uh, tipping points that we are trying to encourage and that we do want. But basically any any sufficiently complex system that has alternative stable states can have a tipping point, whether that's a physical system or a, an ecological system or even a, a social human system. So the tipping point occurs when change in that system becomes self-perpetuating beyond a certain threshold. So, and that, once that happens, that tipping point happens, it often leads then to a quite an abrupt and irreversible consequences. So I like to think of if you're sitting on a chair, nice and steady and, and uh, stable, sitting on a chair, and you do that silly thing that you may have done as a child and you start uh, leaning back. And it's quite hard at first to push with your feet against the wall to lean back and it's got some resistance. But as you approach the pivot point, it's kind of easier and easier. And then it gets to the point where just a little nudge is going to send you either back to your stable sitting position or it's going to send you flat on your back. And so th that's the tipping point. Is this analogous to the inflection point on a technology adoption curve? Uh, that's commonly, it, it sounds like it is. And that's something we use often uh, in our work. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is uh, very much uh, very similar. And certainly the idea of that S-curve shape is is the same, really, the same idea. So you're you're referring to this idea of, um, I think it comes back to the, the 1960s, uh, the idea of diffusions of uh, diffusions of innovations. So um, that explained how new technologies and new ideas spread. So you have these innovators, and at the beginning, it's quite hard to create the change. But by the time you get to the early adopters, you're already starting to see this nonlinear exponential growth curve of adoption. 
and then it gets accelerated even more as you get the early majority people sort of jumping on the bad bandwagon and eventually then the the sort of the late majority of people uh, uh bringing up the tail end so there's it's roughly the similar to that s-shaped accelerating non-linear curve but there's more to the concept of of tipping points than than just the diffusion or spread of new technologies so um we again we divided into earth system tipping points and which we want to avoid and positive tipping points which we're trying to encourage well let's uh i i want to end the the interview on a positive note so we'll leave the positive tipping points for just a moment and concentrate on the negative Give, can you explain um, where we're at and maybe give us some examples of negative tipping points that I hope we haven't passed any, but if we have, maybe you could explain those and uh, some that we're close to. Yeah, so in the Global Tipping Points report, we have identified 26 uh, possible Earth system tipping points, uh, some in the cryosphere, which means the, the frozen parts of the Earth, and some in the biosphere, and some in the ocean and atmosphere circulations. And uh, just to summarize what we found, even at the stage of global overheating that we're at now, which is about 1.2 degrees Celsius, or just over 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit, even at that stage that we are now, we're already at risk of having crossed up to five of these major Earth system tipping points. And those are the Greenland ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, the warm water coal reefs, and uh, the areas of permafrost in the Northern Hemisphere. And, and lastly, the uh, part of the what we call the AMOC, which is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, a part of that which is called the the subpolar gyre, which is a which are part of the North Atlantic circulation of oceans. Uh, Steve, I run into climate skeptics all the time, and uh, it's a consequence of reporting on the uh, the Canadian oil and gas industry, or the oil and gas industry generally. And a lot of them, well, I had somebody, you know, the somebody from a, a big oil company the other day, email me and talk about, you know, UN climate alarmism. What, if I was going to explain tipping points to that person, what kind of empirical data, what kind of evidence could I provide that would be irrefutable? Uh, well, I think even certainly most of the oil people that you uh, that you talk to and certainly oil engineers and so on that they're basically scientists um and they they believe certain things that we will have in common are at least belief in the laws of physics for example so understanding the effect of carbon dioxide on atmosphere warming has been known for about 170 years this isn't new so the observations, direct observations of carbon dioxide buildup in the atmosphere um, has been, it's, 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 it's not at all uh, controversial now that that's happening. And it's just a product, it's just physics. It's just a product of what happens when you burn fossil fuels 
and release methane and so on. Um, so it's it's not something that you that people who believe in the laws of physics and science can refute. Um, so I, I I think I would, you know, if I had time, I would go back to some classroom experiment that you probably did when you were eight to to show what carbon dioxide does to uh, to build up heat in the atmosphere, and then you can uh, do some more really super simple experiments involving um, melting of ice and what happens. The tipping point is what happens when, for example, an ice sheet as it's melting. There are feedbacks that mean that uh, as the ice melts, the ice sheet lowers. As the ice sheet lowers, it goes into warmer and warmer uh, atmospheric uh, temperatures because obviously everybody's been up a mountain, everybody's climbed a mountain. We know it's colder at the top of the mountain, warmer at the bottom of the mountain. So there's these feedback loops and feedback effects that at which an ice sheet um, gets to a point at which there is an irreversible then um loss of ice which you you can't recover so just some very simple basic experiments in science would hopefully persuade that oil person that uh, this isn't just being alarmist it's just basic physics now you mentioned that there were 26 negative tipping points and you and you went uh, described five of them can you give us an idea uh, a flavor of the other 21 uh, yeah, there's, uh, well, there are, uh, obviously, the Amazon rainforest is another big one. There's a potential uh, tipping point in the uh, amount that you can deforest and uh, uh, perturb the, the wildlife and the ecosystems of the Amazon rainforest, after which it, it tips fairly quickly into a, a much more degraded savanna-like state. Um, so the Amazon rainforest is another one. We have uh, tipping points, obviously, in in local, more local systems like glacial areas, um, in lakes, in um, in monsoon uh, cycles, and in um, uh, parts of the ocean, in in fisheries, in in um, in uh, let's see. Uh, I'm not actually an earth scientist myself, so I'm doing this mostly as a uh, as a as a, I'm, I'm personally a social scientist, so I'm going on um, what I've read recently from. I didn't take part in the in the Earth system uh, sections of the of the report, but uh, you have them throughout the terrestrial ecosystems and the land on the ocean and atmosphere systems. So you've got some tipping points in the, for example, you've heard of the the Enso, the uh, El Nino systems. Um, right. You have them in in tropical. Uh, the mangrove swamps areas and stuff like that. Well, let's go. I, I actually would like to spend the majority of this uh, interview on the positive tipping points, because I, yeah. I really think we're at the point, you know, we've, we've had, I don't know, a couple decades, certainly the last decade, there's been a lot of, of negative, uh, the conversation around climate change has been very negative and, and quite rightly. So, I mean, you know, we have to, uh, we have to. There had to be created a certain amount of of stress and tension and and worry on the behalf of the uh, of citizens in order to get them to move and govern and and to support their, the climate policies that their governments wanted to bring in. But things have changed, 
And the, the global energy transition, uh, most of those clean energy technologies have passed their inflection point. And I think, you know, we're now having a more positive conversation than we did a decade ago about the possibility of, of displacing fossil fuels. And we just came out of COP28 and uh, depending on how you look at it, that, that there was another, that was some more positive movement on, on climate policy. So when you're looking at it from a point of view of clean energy, what are the tipping points here? Well, yeah, uh, we've we've already reached a tipping point, uh, a positive tipping point in clean energy, uh, at least for solar and wind. Um, and you've seen the the announcement that the the global community will triple solar energy uh, by twenty thirty. That was in the final COP twenty eight communique. So that's, I mean, this of course for great concern, and it's something to be welcomed. Um, we we have already crossed a, a tipping point in solar and wind. I mean, uh, that is going to grow by three to four times by 2030. I think the the announcement is welcome, but it's 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 also one of these tricks that uh, uh, that governments often play, in which it's a bit like the UK government did at the beginning of this year, telling people, you know, we promise that this government will reduce inflation by X by the end of the year. And that's the headline, and that's what they'll point to as their achievement, and expect the electorate to remember and be grateful for them come election day. But in fact, it's it's already going to happen, um, and it's the, similarly the case with the renewable energy revolution. It's already underway. It's really well underway. Um, the fast growth of solar and wind is going to triple uh, solar and wind generation by 2030. Anyway, um, it's the cheapest form of energy in the world. In almost all countries already. So um, we're going to be producing uh, possibly even a quadrupling of solar and wind generation by the end of the decade. And and we should point out that uh, one of the great benefits of that is that every time you double the manufacture of something, uh, you get a, a, a rights law effect where you get a, a reduction in the in the cost of producing that that good, uh, generally in the fifteen to twenty five percent range. So if you're doubling it and then doubling it again and then doubling it again, uh, you know that's one of the reasons why the forecasts uh, for uh, the cost of solar uh, is headed down still, and uh, we'll probably see. I mean, already I, I'm I'm being told by utilities uh, CEO ut uh, utility CEOs in the United States that some of them are buying, you know, wind power at one cent a kilowatt hour, two cents a, a, a kilowatt hour for solar. You know, that's incredibly cheap. And if it's going to go lower, uh, we may get to where Tony Seba forecasts where it's basically free or, or close to it. So one of the things I'm curious about is your take on the role that China will play in this, because um, I've mentioned this on other podcasts where it's becoming more and more clear that China occupies the role that the U.S. did coming out of World War II. It was the predominant industrial power that gave it incredible geopolitical power. And China now occupies that place in the clean energy industrial revolution. So what is your take on the role that China will play? 
We well, absolutely, you're right. Um, as you say, China is taking a commanding lead, and they're already world leaders now in many of these post-carbon technologies, particularly energy generation and energy storage um, capacities. And they have the manufacturing and the skills base to continue to expand their lead really well beyond 2030. And they've been really proactive in buying up a lot of the key resources around the world, uh, particularly in Africa, and um, developing really close economic and political ties with all the relevant uh, countries. Yeah, I mean, they, they are, um, uh, China spent almost $500 billion last year on zero carbon and low carbon technologies. And that's almost as much as the combined investments of all other countries put together. So, I mean, their their leaders is pretty astonishing. So in response, as we know, we've seen from the United States, we've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, which could release up to uh, $1.2 trillion to, into the new economy. And the European Union has uh, responded uh, like in similarly agreeing to a green new deal a green deal program and that could be worth a trillion euros of investment in sustainable technologies over the course of this decade as well so i um i think really uh, other countries are really going to need to do a lot more to try and catch up with that and to compete and um try to try to come up with um good domestic manufacturing capabilities. Uh, I'll throw my oar in here because um, I was reading in an IEA report on the weekend that uh, the money, that, the, 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 the capital that, that the American government and the EU are making available, so let's call it $2.2 trillion just for sake of argument. All of that that all of that will get invested and then it will it will leverage private capital to build out the supply chains around these core clean energy technology manufacturing. Even with all of that money on the table, the IEA says that the US and the EU will, will only be able to keep up with what China is going to do. China will match them almost dollar for dollar and expanding its already uh, uh, commanding lead. So uh, China has an 80% 80, 80 of the manufacturing around these technologies. And a decade from now, it'll be it'll still be 80%. And that is an, an enormous increase in industrial capacity to manufacture the equipment that is required uh, to uh, produce clean, clean electricity, and then the prime movers that, that use that, that electricity. And I can't help, well, your report says that there will be knock-on effects throughout the the global energy system. Um, what are some of those knock-on effects? Well, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, we have a, a section of the report on what we call uh, cascading effects. So you can see that a, a tipping point in one system can lead to a tipping point in multiple systems in a sort of a domino effect of widespread change across the economy uh, for 
sometimes, well, in our case, obviously, hopefully for positive beneficial uh, outcomes. But for the most part, in terms of just the energy system, uh, we're going to see, for the most part, the sort of the electric electrification of almost everything, I think, um, except for that there will be a role for fuels like green hydrogen in specific areas like freight shipping and steel making and so on. But uh, we're going to see a, a massive electric electrification of um, almost all parts of the energy system. And then, of course, we're going to be up against then the, the bottleneck of, of policy to keep up with that uh, technological advancement in terms of infrastructures and, um, you know, uh, recharging facilities and so on for for cars and we are again way behind china and way behind a lot of other countries in that sense too i i'm i'm curious what you think of an argument that came that the o opec is making and it, you can find it in their in their world oil outlook 2024 2045 that came out in late september early october and they argue that the uh, gl the global governments are actually uh, getting policy fatigue around the climate and are starting to pull back. And the uh, emerging economies like uh, Africa, uh, some in Latin America, uh, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, those kinds of economies can't afford uh, uh, climate uh, policies, you know, to subsidize uh, electrification of transportation, uh, the switch from in the power sector over to renewables, that sort of thing. So what they argue is that the OECD countries will electrify very quickly. They'll they'll make the switch quickly, but the emer the other emerging economies will be much slower, and they'll be they'll stay on uh, fossil fuels for decades yet. And and then down the road, they'll probably make the uh, the transition as their incomes rise and they have the money to to subsidize it. And I don't it sounds like your analysis would argue against that. Um, I, it's certainly on economic grounds, we would argue against that. But you, you're right in the sense that there is a. There's a big, huge risk and opportunity here. The, the risk being that we allow uh, organizations like OPEC and the, the the small coalition of states that they represent to, you probably heard the scandal uh, a week or two ago where it was revealed that um, <laughs> some of these countries are actually actively uh, employing uh, PR companies and diplomats and uh, various uh, proxies to try to encourage African nations to expand their their uh, economies as, as oil users um, at the detriment of uh, renewable leapfrogging technologies which we want them to adopt and so it's there's a risk that we uh, are under invest in the global south and under invest in our um, adaptation funds which, as we've as, as we've seen, that that is the case. COP twenty eight is massively underfunded that area, so uh, we really need to step up and 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 fund the transition for the global south. I have an anecdote that, that illustrates that. So uh, the World Petroleum Congress was held in 
in Calgary in September, and I, and I reported on it. And I went to a press conference that was organized by the uh, Petroleum, Associ Petroleum Producers Association of Africa. And the, the fellow that headed, up, headed it up had been a former uh, OPEC spokesperson. And so he gave this speech about, you know, he, he kind of repeated the OPEC slow transition line. And then he threw it open for questions. And I was the first reporter in with questions. And so I'm, I'm quizzing him on, you know, some of his assumptions. And the, the fellow's got a doctorate. I mean, he's he's pretty pretty quick on his feet. But rather than address the substance of the question, he attacked me for having a political agenda for asking the question in the first place. And and I was a bit taken aback. I mean, but the, it, you can see that, that that's the strategy. You can see that, that that's where they're, they're going with this. And uh, I don't know... I don't know how much success they're going to have. I, I'm not familiar with, you know, the politics down in Africa, and energy policies and so on. But I, I agree with you that uh, if left to their own devices without intervention uh, to help fund the, the transition, uh, there's a, a risk that they will stick to their existing fossil fuel infrastructure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, and African countries owe it to their citizens to help them to create a decent standard of living. And if if they aren't helped to do what we feel is the right thing, they, they're, they're going to use uh, whatever help that they can, I think. Yeah. And I would argue that that, you know, negative tipping points aside, because that, that ought to scare everybody, including folks who live in Africa. But it's the positive tipping points that are are the, the thing that sell the best. Like if you're talking to citizens and you want to say, uh, you want to get them excited about this and, and you can scare them a little bit with the, you know, the, the negative consequences, you know, the, the, we're going to have rising sea levels and, and all sorts of things and, and drought and fight wildfires. But what really gets them committed, I think, is when you say, and th this is basically the next industrial revolution. This is transforming the global energy system, which in turn will transform the global economy. And the, the, op the window is open now for your country, your province, your, your region to attract that investment in these technologies, not just the adoption of them, but the making of them. And this could set, this could set your economy up for decades. Good paying jobs, more prosperity than you're enjoying already. Plus, you've got the advantage of all the, you know, it's clean. And, you know, so you're cleaning things up. Uh, and and I think that the positive tipping points are the ones that that need to be emphasized. And the economic side of this, the pocketbook, people really, you know, uh, respond to pocketbook issues. And to me, uh, this is, while I acknowledge the you know the, the consequences of, of negative tipping points if we're trying to sell this it's the pocketbook that at the end of the day will do it yeah indeed the pocketbook plus the uh appeal to people's children and their families if you say that you know you're gonna, your children are going to have much better health uh in a, you're a family in the middle of lagos in nigeria point. You're really yeah sure 
Well, Steve, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to the your next study. We'll have you back. Thanks again, Mark, and all the best now. Thank you.